Watch the Game, presented by The Nation Network. I'm your host, Sam Blazer, and tonight is going to be a solo show, but I do have a very special guest. We had a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, I had surgery about two months ago and been on the shelf, and now, um, after my, I guess, midsection injury has been uh, taken care of, I'm back, and I'm going to be back with a great episode here with J.D. Burke. He is the managing editor of Canucks Army here at the Nation Network, contributor for The Athletic Vancouver as well. J.D., how you doing today? I'm doing really well. You, you forgot to mention also the co-host of Nation Network Radio on TSN 1040. Not that I would ever pump my own tires or anything like that. Exactly. There, there's so much stuff that you're doing that it's, it's tough to keep track of it all. It's a, I'm trying to uh, put it all in there, but each and every day it seems like it's growing and uh, your influence is getting wider and wider. I, I love it. I love it. That's awesome. I, I appreciate it. It's It's been a crazy two months. Um, you know, I, I found that sleep is overrated. <laughs> it was a social life, um, but it's it's been fun to really kind of uh, hit multiple platforms, multiple mediums, and kind of expand on my uh, my media repertoire, as it were. But uh, enough about that. Can we like talk about what an absolute bitch Coom is? <laughs> no, that that is something that we need to talk about. Cam can't make it. Uh, I've been trying to schedule with Cam for the past two weeks to try to get the podcast back going again. I actually. Uh, I've been off of the pain pills for a little bit now for my surgery, and ever since then I've been uh, bugging Cam and telling him, "Hey, we need to get the podcast going again." You know, a lot of people have been messaging me about it. People want uh, us to start it back up again, and he's kind of like, "Eh." Today he can't do it, even though he told me to reschedule it from what was it Thursday or Wednesday to Sunday yeah. because it's his uh, mom's birthday and he wanted to go out to dinner. But the issue is, is that his time it's four o'clock, and unless his mom is in between 70 and 80 years old, I'm not entirely sure how that's supposed to work out unless she's going to some, like, buffet. I, You know, but who am I to judge? Who am I to cast stones here? Maybe Cam will come back on as a co-host soon enough. You're far too kind. There are <laughs> takeaways here for me. Like, first of all, I don't know who Cam is. I only know of Akum. <laughs> that is secondly, true. Secondly, he just doesn't want it enough. He just has a low compete level. Exactly, and, and here you are returning from surgery. You're on like some Chris Russell shit. This guy's pulling off a little, a bit of a Alex Semen routine, and just just not appreciating it. What's actually funny is uh, Nick Mercadante at the exact same surgery as me at uh, and me at N Mercad on Twitter, and uh, we both were talking. I'm like, man, this is like really put us on our butts. And uh, David Backus got the exact same surgery. And he was back after three weeks, <laughs> like actually playing in the NHL. And we were both kind of like, huh, we've been like out for two months and like not at work. And he is playing a, an athletic sport that's out of this world ridiculous that he's able to do this. But, hey, I guess that's why they are who they are. And I'm, you know, at a desk most of the day just typing away. Exactly. That's that NHL level compete. <laughs> exactly. So I want to talk about that with you because uh, – you know, the Vancouver Canucks are an NHL team, uh, contrary to what some people say. Uh, haven't relegated yet. <laughs> haven't been, exactly. I, and I'm, as a Columbus Blue Jackets fan, I'm just glad that relegation never caught on, or they would be like in the lowest absolute levels, uh, still trying to work their way back up. And so if Adam was on here, Adam Lascaris, who's a co-host from time to time, we'd obviously end up talking about the Leafs. But I, I think it's time to say it, and I think you'll agree with me. Brock Besser, he's, he's got to be better than Austin Matthews, right? Well, it's funny you should say that because, like, on the Canucks broadcast, they show this a lot. They'll look at uh, a comparison of Brock Besser through his thir- his first, like, 39 or however many NHL games, and they'll compare his production to Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews. And it's been really fascinating because it's, uh, it's interesting to me that a city that has been so – lacking in terms of real NHL talent, like game-breaking talent, uh, a city that's been so lacking in a prospect that they could be this excited about and watch him turn the corner from that to an everyday NHLer. And it makes me wonder, is he underhyped? Probably. He's right up there if you look at their points per game from that same period. Uh, The only thing that's a little bit disingenuous about that graphic, of course, is that Matthews and McDavid were doing it as 18-year-olds and... They're doing it at a premium position, so I'm not sure if I'm ready to suggest that Brock Besser is greater than Austin Matthews, and especially when a lot of what's happened with Brock Besser has been 
Uh, well, I made a joke about it the other day. It's I am become Brock Besser, destroyer of expected goal models, because <laughs> currently he's on pace to uh, outproduce his expected goal output by about 200%. Now, nobody's really publicly tested the Korskadot hockey expected goals model and seen its repeatability. Uh, so it's hard to say how much stock to put into that, especially because I'm not entirely certain if uh, that model takes into account shooter quality which certainly Brock Besser would be among the best shooters in the NHL like it, it reminds me of Patrick Liney last season where he was doing the same thing he'd outproduce his expected goals by uh, I think 200% of his output but the problem was it wasn't accounting for the fact that he was a significantly above average finisher and that's difficult to do with rookies because there isn't a historical precedent to lean on so um, can Brock Besser keep it up at this current pace well, probably not. He's producing at about three times what he should be. But by that same token, I don't think the drop-off is going to be that steep because I just I look at all the tools in his shot, and there's just so much to it. It's such a deceptive shot. He's got such a quick release. He keeps like I've had a lot of talks with scouts about Brock Besser and why his shot is so effective. And I've heard every every skill in the book. He keeps a shadow on the puck. So it's hard for goalies to pick it up where it's coming off. He keeps his shoulders at a square level. He doesn't really turn his wrist, too. So he's just got, like, there are all these qualitative elements to what Brock Besser is doing that indicates to me that there is some level of repeatability for him being a significantly higher than above average finisher. So it's uh, it's been pretty fun to follow. I mean, I, I you can't be a fan of the team when you're covering them day to day, but I'm a fan of good hockey, and I love the game. And getting to watch him play has been a real treat, no matter what the circumstances are. What's out of this world with Besser, at least when you watch the highlights, is how many times goalies are just absolutely befuddled by a shot. Like, almost no movement from them, because it comes off the stick in such a way that he's they, they're almost just standing still. And every single, it, it happens like way more than I, I care to... Uh, you know, I don't actually care to admit, but, you know, like off the rush, or... You know, even on the power play, like I've seen it multiple times where obviously they could expect that Besser shooting, but it like, happens in such a flash that it's I, it doesn't happen. And it's why it's why I'm kind of excited, or at least when I see that uh, the Canucks highlights or if I catch a game here or there, that he's the player that I'm watching, even when it doesn't seem like he has, you know, a lot of shots in the moment, he's able to, you know, put a lot of them on net in such a fashion that it's a there's an amount that you know you kind of feel like it's going to happen it's going to it's going to go in no matter where it is and i feel like there's so a few players like that uh, another obviously going to refer back to another columbus blue jacket because my frame of references are are tight at least in my uh, everyday viewing but it seems like it's very similar to someone like artemi panarin where it just comes off the stick in such a way that the lift the the electricity to it it's just kind of out of this world and it's really exciting i would have to say from a canucks perspective because it just happens in such a way that you know, I haven't seen it in, in a while, especially when you look, look up, up and down the lineup, the players you score for them. But wouldn't you say that it's it's a different type of dynamic player that they haven't had in a while? Oh, absolutely. I don't think the Canucks have had a player with this kind of a release since Marcus Nasland. And a lot of people have made that comparison since. And that is high praise. I think Marcus Nasland is one of those NHL case studies where the player is so understated in his approach. He's such a, a quiet person. I remember... At the end of Marcus Naslin's career, and this is what was really funny about him, is he would score goals, a ton of them. Even at the end of his career, it, a lot of his seasons were viewed as disappointments, but he was still relatively productive. But the funny thing was, Marcus Naslin would score a goal, and I swear to God, it looked like somebody had shot his dog. I've never seen somebody so unhappy to score goals. <laughs> um, but now I'm just digging into the annals of Canucks history back when it was a better time. Uh, I, I mean, that's... One comparison. Another one that's being brought up a lot right now is uh, Brock Besser, whether he can beat uh, Pavel Bure's Canucks rookie goals record. I think he's on pace for about 34 at the moment. I think Pavel Bure, I'd have to look it up, but I think he scored about uh, 33 in his rookie season. Um, if you can feel or hear typing, that's definitely not me looking it up right now. <laughs> uh, yes, he had 34 in 65 games. So Brock Besser is on pace to miss uh, about two games this season because Travis Green. Uh, inexplicably healthy scratched him to start the season for two straight games. But um, 
it's not going to be quite as impressive as Pavel Bure's, obviously. Uh, I think 34 goals in 65 games is more impressive than 35 and 80. But that's that's the name that's being brought up. And uh, when you're being compared to those two in Canucks history, that's always a good thing. I think over the past two years, you and I have discussed the the makeup of the team multiple times, talking how there's an infusion of young talent. They still have some older players that, you know, they're not necessarily kicking them out yet, but they're not necessarily sure what they want to do with them. Uh, what do you think of the makeup of this team right now? There's a, there's young players in there, but you also have like a Thomas Vanek in there. You have uh, you know an Alexander Edler. You have the Sedins, obviously, but the the younger players seem to be pushing for more and more time. Do you, where do you see the handoff happening, and do you think it's going to be happening within this season or next? Because they they had a good stretch uh, run there, and it seems to be falling off. Where where is What's the next step for this Canucks team? And do you think it's possibly, are they going to try to keep pushing with the crew that they have? The Canucks are going to be uh, one of the more interesting teams, especially at the deadline. Uh, I think the the process of handing off the reins to the younger group is, uh, it's it's starting to take off. Uh, not at the pace that I think the Sedins would hope for. One of the things that, and, and I know this isn't the type of conversation that a lot of uh, analysts, especially when they lean towards the analytics side of uh, player analysis like to to think about, but the Sedins have had to spend the last four years answering every question after every embarrassing loss, after every humiliating defeat, and so that's one part of this uh, passing of the torch that I'm really interested to see happen because uh, Bo Horvat, for all his leadership qualities, and he is a fantastic person. I think anybody who's covered the team in any capacity can speak to uh, his merit as a human being. But they've yet to kind of alleviate that pressure from the Sedins. And that will be an interesting storyline to follow next season, especially if the Sedins retire, because it doesn't look like this team is quite ready to turn the corner yet. And somebody is going to have to answer for those poor losses. And the only person who's really stepped out of, stepped out from their young group would be uh, Jacob Markstrom. And he is a lot of fun to talk to. He can be very self-deprecating. He's definitely picked up some of that from uh, Roberto Luongo, it's it's been fun to follow. He can be very hard on himself too, but uh, you almost appreciate that a little bit. It shows that he's invested, and uh, it's certainly there's been some maturation there because I remember when the Canucks first acquired um, Jacob Markstrom from the Panthers, the first thing Eddie Lack said was, you think I'm a jokester? Wait till you see this guy. <laughs> and Eddie Lack kind of worked his way out of the organization because, I mean, Say whatever you want about Eddie Lack, and I think that his career was sabotaged by what happened in Carolina. That's another podcast unto itself. Hmm. But um, he kind of worked his way out of the Canucks lineup because the leadership group would, when when the going is good, it's easy to look at somebody in their stall who's laughing and talking about tacos and playing video games with people who cover the team. Uh, that becomes a little bit tiresome after, let's say, a six-one loss, and he still has that grinning smile and he doesn't seem to be phased in the slightest so i think jacob markstrom's picked up some lessons from eddie lack uh picked up some lessons from roberto luongo and he's actually fared a lot better than i thought he would this season so that's that's one area where the canucks have uh, outperformed my expectations certainly uh as it pertains to the bigger picture here and what's what they're going to do with this team next season well that is a an interesting interesting storyline for this offseason the Canucks have been chasing uh, Evander Kane for years now years his name always comes up and last season there was even talk of uh, whether they were going to acquire him in November and the rumor was that ownership nixed the trade uh, they actually took away Benning's ability to complete any trades through that period of time that was the rumor uh, the Canucks are already being connected to Kane, whether it's by trade or free agency. So I think what that says to me is, A, they don't seem to care about his off-ice stuff. And uh, so help me, if they do make that decision, I will hold them accountable for it in the worst way possible. I look forward to being at that press conference. But what it also tells me is that they genuinely think that they don't have a group quite ready yet to take that next step. And something the Canucks have been doing since Jim Benning took over is they don't want to have a, a significant age gap where you've got the Sedins going towards their 40s and you've got Bo Horvat at about 21, 22. They want somebody in the middle. It's why they made that, um, let's just say, poor uh, judgment on making the Brandon Sutter trade. It's why they acquired Eric Branson. They want people to bridge the gap. So 
Uh, what that tells me is that they don't see this group as ready to quite make that step yet because they don't think that there would be this much smoke still uh, without a little bit of uh, kindling going on on the Vander Kane front. And they're going to have $14 million in cap space this offseason coming directly from the Sedins leaving. They're also going to have about six uh, RFAs, but none of them look to be high-priced RFAs. The only one who really threatened to do that was Berchi, perhaps Granlund a little bit, but with Berchi getting hurt and Granlund underperforming, they're probably going to take more of a bridge deal type approach to those two. So um, they're in a really interesting place. I think a lot of ownership groups and management groups would be willing to take their lumps for another season or two, but that's just never been the Canucks approach, certainly not under Jim Benning. And even this season, he said that this is uh, the best group he's had in four years, which tells me that he's not building uh, a rebuilding team. He's building one to compete now because he's most satisfied with what he's done this season. And he said that while the Canucks were still in the playoff spot. So uh, hard to say what the Canucks are going to do. They always seem to have one foot in each door, one eye in each direction. Um, but I know that they've still got a lot of work to do, even with the amount of prospects they have. Like They can't be complacent because the only way that this rebuild with the places that are sorry, the pieces that are in place can work as if every single one of them hits on their absolute highest ceiling. And we know that's significantly unlikely to happen. So, uh, geez, I don't know. It's going to be an interesting year, a lot of storylines, and I will not be lacking for things to write about. I can tell you that right now. That's not a bad problem to have. Now, you spoke about bridging that gap between the ages there, and two players that were brought on I thought were pretty interesting, and I thought good risks, at least, considering who the Canucks were and what they were trying to do, were bringing in Sam Gagne and uh, Michael Delzato. I, what do you think of their performances thus far? And, uh, you know, I've seen in the past that there's uh, some criticism for both of them, at least this this season, rather. And are you... What what I guess what I'm trying to ask here is would you say that the, you're, that you're a fan of what they've been able to bring to the table thus far, considering their price tag, or is this something that they need to be performing more to uh, allow that the justification to, uh, for their uh, signing? Well, the the Michael Delzato and Sam Gagne thing was uh, it was peculiar to watch from afar because it I. Uh, I feel like the Canucks front office was patronized with the burden of low expectations. I think a year after they acquired Louis Erickson in free agency and handed him that uh, most um, egregious of contracts. And and I say that full well understanding that Louis Erickson is probably worth that contract on the open market for a contending team. The Canucks are just never going to be that through the life of his deal. So uh, I think this season a lot of people were happy just that they didn't make an error of that level. Um, now, Michael Delzato, very imperfect player. Sam Gagne, very imperfect player. I, I, frankly, I thought the Canucks' best pickup in free agency was uh, Anders Nielsen, and he's been full value for the Canucks. He got lit up last week, 7-1 by the Nashville Predators. But other than that, he's just been full value. I think he even had a 924 save percentage going into that game. He's probably down to the 700s now, but... Um, <laughs> such as life as a goaltender. One game can do that to you. Uh, Gagne, for me, has been fairly disappointing uh, based on the expectations that came with him. And a lot of the thinking for Sam Gagne, as far as I understand it, is that, again, getting back to that conversation about bridging over the the transition of the Canucks to a new core, is that there was some fear in the front office that Henrik Sedin and Daniel uh, could retire next season, and they didn't want to be put into a bind. And they don't—they're not under any delusions that Sam Gagne can replace what Henrik Sedin brings to the table, but he can occupy that space. Do you know what I mean? He can be that third mm. line for them next season, which is essentially what the Sedin line has been for the Canucks before the Bo Horvat injury. So Gagne has always, to me, been a bit player. You can shelter him at even strength, as the Columbus Blue Jackets did last season. You put him with a hyper-modern fourth line. I think he played mostly with uh, Josh Anderson and Scott Hartnell last year. And you can get pretty solid results. And He's not going to light the world on fire, but you can probably get about 30 even-strength points out of him, which is close to about second-line production. Now, the problem is the Canucks don't have that space to shelter him, and that was a, a storyline going into this season is how are they going to shelter all these imperfect players? And even worse than that, the problem with Sam Gagne is that they haven't 
sheltered him in the slightest. And in fact, they forced him into roles that he's not even remotely capable of playing. Uh, for the first month and a half of the season, he was the point man on their power play. And the entire configuration was wonky. I'll grant the Canucks that, but nobody was caught in such a weird position as Sam Gagne, whose best weapon is his ability to see the ice, to distribute the puck. I think he played in the high slot when he was uh, with the Columbus Blue Jackets last year on their power play. And this season, they had him on the far point. And I, when I say the far point, there were points at the game where you'd look on the power play and Sam Gagne would be in the absolute corner at the highest point of the offensive zone. And he'd be so far removed from the play, and he was so ineffective. And it was one of the most confounding things to watch as a, somebody who follows the team because you just couldn't figure out what the thought process was that lended, that loaned itself to that decision. Because it's not what he's done in the past, and it's not what he's capable of doing now. His skill set hasn't changed. He's 27 years old. And, and going a step further, he's been playing left wing. He's played a little bit of center, very sparingly tiny bit of right wing. I'd say that primarily, though, he's played on the left side, which he never did before this season. And even worse than that, he's been used on their matchup line, which is the Brandon Sutter line. So he's being expected to shut down the opposition's best forward. And then on the power play, he's being put in the absolute worst spot to produce anything in the way of offense. And to Sam Gagne's credit, there's a lot of underlying signs that he's going to turn the corner. His expected goals rate uh, for at least a month and a half, was second to only uh, Daniel, I think Daniel Sedin. I think he was in that territory. You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Or, and I, I mean you, the listener, but he was pretty pretty successful in terms of what his underlying results suggested he should be doing. But there's definitely an incongruity between that and what we were observing from him because he's playing in poor positions that he was ill-suited to, and at, it's no surprise he wasn't able to produce. Uh, Michael Delzato. This one really caught me off guard. Travis Green is a huge fan of his. And for the first month of the season, nobody played more on the Canucks than Michael Delzato. And nobody played in more shutdown minutes than Michael Delzato. And at the end of a game, if they were defending a one-goal lead, guess who? It was Michael Delzato who was on the ice every single time. Uh, He was playing a lot with Eric Branson, so accordingly his underlying results uh, were just awful i think they had a sub 40 Corsi 4 percentage mm. and uh just to speak to delzato by himself he hasn't really improved away from good branson and i still think travis green is a big believer in delzato but uh in the last two weeks his ice time has dropped significantly so i wonder what's uh what's at stake there and especially as the canucks blue line gets healthy they can't really sit good branson even if he should just because of the logistics of the situation with his contract expiring and the need to trade or sign him. Um, so I wonder if Del Zotto's ever going to find himself in those crosshairs. I've never been a huge fan of Del Zotto's game. He, uh, he does a lot of things well. If you were to look at his skill set uh, in a vacuum, you'd expect him to be in a really positive uh, possession impact player. But uh, even going back to his time in Philly, I think Tyler Dello pointed this out on the PDO cast. Uh, if you looked at his results away from Radko Gudis, who is surprisingly a very effective uh, two-way player, they were abhorrent. And surprise, surprise, on the Canucks, no matter who he's playing with, the team is usually getting outshot and by a significant margin. So eh, it's for me, Delzato is what he is. And I'm not really surprised at how he's performed for the Canucks. The only surprising thing for me has been the extent to which Travis Green used him in the first month of the season, and even uh, his ice times drop, but there are moments where you can tell that he's the guy that the coach trusts the most. Now, it, I, yeah, and, and there's and that's always an interesting thing from team to team is trying to figure out what to do with the, the defensemen and how to exactly put them in a position to succeed. Because if you're able, I feel like you kind of can work from the top down. You can have. A top. If you have a solid top pairing, and then from there you can use the other two. Uh, I guess the bottom four pairings, and I guess in a more interesting way. And uh, I guess a player that I'm really interested in discussing and uh, and learning more about uh, from your experience around the team is that of Derek Pouliot. He was someone who got shel- uh, not necessarily sheltered, but you know was put down in the AHL for such a long period of time with the Penguins, and now it looks like he's you know uh, breaking out. Uh, breaking out is a tough word to use in the, uh, considering, but 
he seems like a player that's uh, found a good situation with the Canucks. Are you a big fan of Pouliot and what he's able to bring to the team, or is he someone that needs to have expectations tempered, uh, considering his age and uh, what what he's been given uh, uh, offensively, especially with zone starts? Well, I've I've I was a bit skeptical of the trade. Like I, I make no uh, qualms of admitting that either. It's it's true. I was. A bit skeptical of the Canucks' decision to to throw in a fourth rounder for a player who was a day removed from uh, waiver eligibility, but I talked to some people with connections to the team, and uh, it became apparent to me about a week after the process that uh, the Canucks, if they wanted Pouliot, they had to give up a fourth, and not necessarily because that was the Penguins' price, but because that was the price that other teams were willing to go to. And so that was the price of admission. The Canucks were all too happy to pay it. Uh, it seemed a little bit excessive at the time. I know we're just talking about a fourth rounder here, but the thing to remember about the Canucks is that they've traded away more draft picks in Jim Benning's tenure than they've actually acquired. So it just becomes a bit of a repeating theme. So even when it's just a low chance pick like the fourth rounder, it, you you start to get sick of that pattern, especially if you're somebody who has to cover this team and you want them to you want them to turn the corner, and those picks hold special value for a player like, uh, sorry, a general manager like Jim Benning, who is a supposed super scout. Uh, Derek Pouliot's on ice performance since he arrived to the team, though, has been excellent. And one of the interesting things to come out of his time as a Canuck is that Travis Green admitted that he said to Pouliot, listen, there's no pressure on you to produce offensively. We want you to become a good two-way player. Don't worry about putting up points. That is the last, that is the least of your concerns. And so I think that helped Pouliot gain the confidence to kind of grow into his role. And you know with his skill set that if he's going to make it at the NHL level, the points are definitely going to follow. It just makes sense, Um, especially given his pedigree as an eighth overall pick and somebody who has always been an offensive defenseman. Uh, And it's, it's been fun to watch because his development, you just, Travis Green says this after every game, that was Derek Pouliot's best game. And... (laughs) I kid you not, it's it's an every game thing. He's he's probably said it about ten times this season. And you wanna say that he's just, you know, blowing hot air or whatever, but it, there's an element of truth to it if you've had to follow the Canucks closely. Each game he improves just a little bit more. And uh first was calming things down and becoming an everyday defenseman, and now the offense is starting to follow. He had a three point night not that long ago. He's up to ten points in thirty games. And he's playing significant minutes. You can't use the sheltered argument because he's been playing with Alexander Adler, and that's somebody the Canucks have always had as one of their first pair guys. So there's no sheltering in that role, I'll tell you that. And to Derek Pouliot's credit, he has a 51% Corsi, fourth best on the Canucks. Uh, So his two-way game's been excellent, and the offensive results have started to follow. And he's really been a huge luxury for the Canucks because – uh, one of the things that intrigued me about the trade was looking back at his time with the Portland Winterhawks, Travis Green was his coach for a full season. And I remember from that season, and I talked to a few people to confirm this, that Derek Pouliot played a lot on the right side. And so Travis Green, as injuries mounted, he had to get a bit creative with this roster. And one of the things he did was move Derek Pouliot to the right side with Alexander Edler. And he's been full value in that spot. In fact, he's looked even better on the right side, which is uh, fairly interesting for somebody who's a left shot and somebody who makes their hay uh, in transition. So he's been full value for the Canucks, and they're looking pretty damn smart on that trade. I'd say a lot of credit to the Canucks pro scouts and Travis Green, especially for the development of Pouliot from a 7th, 8th defenseman to somebody playing uh, the most minutes at even strengths for this team since November. He's actually taken the lead. So uh, the coach trusts him, and he's been full value and given him no reason not to trust him. I got a couple more questions for you, GD, about the Canucks, and then we'll talk a little bit about the World Juniors here uh, that are coming up. Uh, another player that I'm interested in talking to you about is uh, obviously a player that gets talked about in, uh, like I guess, a lot of the draft circles, uh, just because of where he was selected, who he's picked over, things like that. But it's Jake Vertanen. Uh, what do you think of his progression thus far? What do you think of his development? I mean, I th- he's, or- he's only 21, but there's still 
people want to see certain levels to, to his game to ensure that he's going to be a, an everyday NHLer. Do you think he's well on his way to that, or is, is there something that that uh, is holding him back? Is is his development on the right path to make him uh, at least an everyday player at this point? Jake Bertan, and even going back to his draft class, I didn't project him as somebody who's going to be a first or second liner. I projected him as somebody who was going to be Rafi Torres or David Booth. And I, I, that's just the way it is. If you watched him in junior, he didn't have a real nose for the net. A lot of scouts had concerns about where he was scoring his goals. And a lot of those concerns have been realized in his professional career because he shoots a lot from the perimeter. He takes very low percentage shots. And he just... its you, you start to feel bad for the kid because you keep going back to it and the underlying sentiment isn't one that speaks especially positively to him, but uh, the hockey sense just isn't there. It's it's an adventure watching Jake Vertanen play. There are shifts where you can watch the Canucks, and uh, we joke about this a lot in Vancouver, but he can be anywhere on the ice at any given moment. Uh, part of that is his speed. Another part of that is his work ethic, which is to his credit. He's somebody who works his ass off for this team, uh, one of the best back checkers in in on the Canucks but by that same token when he's the the left winger or sorry when he's playing the right wing and he's down in the left boards in the defensive zone and uh, below the goal line you start to ask yourself what's going on here or when the puck is in uh, below the goal line in the offensive zone and both defensemen are playing high uh, you start to wonder why is Jake Vertanen doing a circle at the face-off mark outside in the neutral zone so I don't think that he has the hockey sense to ever be a first or second line player. Uh, it's never been there. It's never been a part of his game. He's much more of a uh, visceral player than he is a cerebral. He likes to rush with the puck. He likes to throw big hits. Uh, and he's been doing a lot of that for the Canucks. And he's one of their better transition forwards. His zone entry numbers are sterling. Uh, on a related note, his two-way impact has been fantastic. He's been a uh, positive possession player for the Canucks for most of the season. And he's somebody who gets a lot of shots on goal. And even with the low percentage shots he's taking, his individual expected goals for 60 is actually second highest on the Canucks only to Daniel Sedin. So he's doing a lot of good things. He's doing them very well. I think the expected goal output uh, overrates Tannen's quality as a shooter. I don't think he's ever going to shoot higher than about 10%, which is really damning when you consider how good of a weapon his shot is. When he gets in positions to actually use it, he's at full value. The only problem is he's just as happy to take a shot from uh, the half wall. So Jake Vertanen has turned into a full-time NHL player. He's turned into what I would consider a very high-end third liner. Um, but even going back to a conversation I had with the scout at the, uh, what was it called? The top prospects game when it was in Vancouver, that was about two years ago. And that scout said he is this close and he made, you know, the, the finger motion, uh, you know, the, the pinching your head that have you ever seen that kids yeah. in the hall show? Yes. He made that. <laughs> yeah. And he goes, he's this close to hitting his ceiling. And here we are two seasons later. And I can't say that I've seen much to refute that notion because, uh, unless you can see the ice, he's never going to be able to take advantage of these physical gifts and become the power forward that the Canucks want him to be. Uh, we talked about Naslin and Bure as comparisons for for uh, Besser. A lot of comparisons have been made to Todd Bertuzzi for Jake Bertanen. Uh, I was a bit young for this, but apparently Bertuzzi was a very frustrating player, much like Bertanen was at this stage in his career. And certainly the Canucks have to hope that that's the case with Bertanen because uh, for everything he's done well, it's just not looking like he's ever going to be that game-changing talent that they really need. So I, I think that we'll be having the same conversation about Jake Bertanen for the next four seasons. And it's, uh, it's tough because he's in a tough spot. You know he wants to do well. He's a good kid. He thinks highly of being a part of the Canucks organization. But there's just just not enough there. And and I think if you had your expectations in a good place at the start of the season, uh, at the start of the draft, rather, when he was taken sixth overall, then there's something to it. You know, I mean, for me, I'm not disappointed. This is what I expected would be the case. But I think it's unfortunate for him because no matter what, this is going to be a storyline that bogs him down for the rest of his career, especially with 
Nylander and Ehlers in particular among about 15 others from the first round of that draft class outproducing him at a significant clip. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about the team itself. I know we talked about uh, the age difference. We talked about a few of the players that are, you know, performing and not performing up and down there. But I kind of want to give give the opportunity to talk about the team, I guess, in general and ask about whether you'd put the stock up on them or the stock down. Because just looking overall at the Canucks in the standings, they're right around league average in points, uh, save percentage, PDO, everything. It's, they're just kind of there right in the middle are you are you buying stock in this team and right now and would you say that they have a chance in the playoffs in the pacific or are you gonna be are you selling your stock right now and you think that you know you may want to abandon ship uh at this point in time i know it's tough to say especially what we're since we're only what like 33 games in the season but a lot of times at this point in the year you can kind of tell about where the standings are and who's going to be participating and who's not oh i i keep saying this but i think this canucks team is what it is they they've been uh even when they were winning hockey games at the beginning of the year and actually being at the top of their division for a little bit there uh up at the top not at the very top that would be the vegas golden knights which we all expected i saw coming uh, <laughs> moving on the canucks had a bottom 10 shot share in the nhl it uh, didn't get better when you adjusted for score and they had a top 10 pdo it's i i would have sold stock in october it's you just have to be realistic travis green is a, has proven himself to be an excellent coach and he's getting more out of this team than i think anybody uh, could have reasonably asked for and probably it's you know if he does this again for another season or two you have to ask if anybody in this league could and and that's the one part of this team where i'm investing even more stock in travis green he's like any coach he's got his deficiencies when it comes to uh, deployment he leans on some questionable options uh, particularly brandon sutter i think he is playing him the most of any canuck on most nights and uh he's still stuck at one goal though he's been injured for a little bit so uh he's got his flaws in deployment uh good branson was a favorite player of his but when you look at the sum of his parts he's been excellent for the canucks and he's uh probably gotten more out of them than anybody should have but by that same token knowing that i'm selling stock and this team should be selling off assets at the deadline I guess it's this, uh, the Pacific and the Western Conference is so interesting that I feel like there's like an opportunity there, but then from a long-term perspective, you also have to ask yourself. So I, I find that the, their situation interesting, just being caught in where they are now, and I, and I feel like it's something that they've been perpetually caught in, which makes it even more damning and even more interesting, I think, if you're just an onlooker and an observer who's trying to gauge what's going on with the Canucks. So it's... They're 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 an interesting crew, and I I, I enjoy talking about them because they have players that I find completely fascinating, either from uh, you know a play standpoint or from like uh, almost a test standpoint to see how they're used or what the the different ways that they play with uh, other players. I and I enjoy I I know a lot of people talk about how the uh, rate of play and the rate of shots, talking about fun and not fun. But I for whatever reason, whenever I watch the Canucks, I always enjoy the games they play in, but. Like I say, I don't I don't catch them often often enough. So I, 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 I don't I don't mind them. You know, you watch some teams. Uh, the Blue Jackets played the the Carolina Hurricanes last night, and everyone always talks about how the Hurricanes, uh, you know, always poised to make the playoffs. But I swear to God, they've already played the games against the Hurricanes for the season. The Blue Jackets have, and it's just insanely boring to watch. Oh yeah, same thing happened when they came to town to play the Canucks. Probably one of the most boring games of the season. It's, like, uh, it's almost like this modified trap. It's 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 interesting to watch them because they're very disciplined. They're, you're not going to get a lot of odd man rushes. No one's going to do anything that's out of this out of this world. Like Jeff Skinner's the, really the only one that'll like ooh and ah you uh, on the ice just because of how great of a skater he is and how well he's able to handle the puck. And it's just like my goodness, I I, I can't handle watching. Well, I couldn't handle watching them night in and night out, especially when they blow so many leads as they do too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I think like that one point you made about pace of play, uh, it's been interesting to follow the team. And Sean Tierney, who's a fantastic resource and uh, one of the good guys in the community, certainly. He's always posting these pace graphs, and the Canucks are lowest by uh, about a country mile. So that's been funny to most people who follow the Canucks because this has been the most exciting team 
that we've seen in years. I think their game against the San Jose Sharks on Friday, for example, that was some of the most entertaining hockey I've seen this le- this season from any team. That's and, what I was about to say. I caught that on the NHL Network on the fly, and I remember wa- like watching part of it and being like, this is a great game. Well, Travis Green is adamant, even with the injuries that he's had in his lineup, that this has to be a team that attacks, not counterattacks, not sits on leads, which has been a big storyline in, in the Canucks for years now. Uh, the joke last season was that they're going to defend the one-goal deficit to the death. And <laughs> if you followed the team, it's it was uh, the only way to get some fun out of those games was to make fun of that situation. It was just unreal. And this year, it's just a complete 180. This team is playing all-out hockey. Total hockey, as Jack Hahn would have said. <laughs> and it just has been awesome because you don't see that from teams ever. And and even some of your favorite coaches to follow, like as somebody who's followed the Canucks for as long as I have, I have such an appreciation for Elaine Vigneault. Sorry if you're listening, Nick Mercadante. <laughs> it's uh, nothing personal. But I have such an appreciation for him. Uh, I think perhaps he was better with the Canucks than he was the Rangers. I'll allow for that. But even with the Rangers, you watch them and they play that counterattack style. But even he has a tendency to lean on players like Mark Stahl and uh, to occasionally trap it up when he has the lead. And it bites them in the ass from time to time. Travis Green doesn't have that. And after Friday night's win over the Sharks, he even said, we're not going to sit back. We're going to attack. Safety is death, that kind of thing. And it's so refreshing to hear, and it's so fun to watch. It's just, it kills me that their shot rate is so low, no matter who they play, because the on-ace product has been fantastic. It's like, just from an entertainment perspective, as somebody who wants to watch these hockey games, it has been some of the best hockey I've seen in years. That's exciting, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it continues to improve, too. Now, I... I got some questions for you about the World Juniors here, and I just want to ask, I guess, kind of in a more general light, what is, or I guess who, rather, uh, is the uh, the team that you're looking out for and the team that you're most invested in? And my guess is going to be Sweden, uh, at least for Elias P- uh, Peterson, or Pedersen. I'm going to get the uh, pronunciation wrong because, you know, that's just I'm just an ignorant American that way. But... Uh, is, is Sweden the team that you're circling um, uh, overall, or is there another team that you think that could uh, step up and take away that throne? Uh, Sweden is certainly up there, especially with Elias Pettersson, who's putting up generational totals in the SHL. He's like Swedish Gretzky over there. It's unreal. And uh, resident Elias Pettersson gift machine, Ryan Beach, has uh, been an excellent resource because he's just gift every one of his goals, every one of his highlight reel plays. And they've all been so fun to watch. Uh, so certainly I'll be keeping an eye on Elias Pedersen. But for me, there's less intrigue there because even though he's an 18-year-old and somebody who's playing in their draft plus one season, I have the utmost confidence in the fact that Elias Pedersen is going to be a significant game-breaking talent at the NHL level. My only concern, or not concern, is question is whether he's a center or a winger because the Canucks made such a priority of getting a center in that draft. And they're so confident that he's a center. But most of the scouts I've spoke to say he's a winger and playing in Sweden for the last two seasons, he's primarily played on the wing. Uh, so there's a bit of a, a deviation between what the Canucks are uh, promoting or what they're suggesting they've gotten this player from a positional standpoint, uh, as opposed to what he's been in Sweden, whether that's the Al Svenskin last year with Timra or the SHL this season with Baxio. Now, that will be fun to watch. What interests me is the Ole Ulevi storyline for Team Finland. Mm. He's going to be their captain, I would imagine. He's somebody who I watched a lot of OHL last year, and I was just so impressed with what... uh, He has a hockey sense that, to me at times, is up there with some of the best players I've ever seen just in terms of his ability to see the ice and create passing lanes and see plays materialize that you can't even have like a semblance of existing watching it from a full bird's eye view. That is something you can't teach. And that's why I've always been a bigger believer in Ole Ulevi in spite of all of the doubters 
and the people talking him down. And he's always going to get ridden because Jacob Chikrin made the NHL the first year. Uh, Charlie McAvoy's playing 85 minutes a game this season. And Michael Sergachev has been a game breaker. He, of course, my favorite of all those defensemen going into that draft, I should say. But Levy is still a really good player, and I would never gave the Canucks a hard time for picking him at fifth overall because he looked at the time to be a first-pair defenseman. And I still have some belief that he'll develop into that player. Uh, but he came to camp this year, and right from Penticton, uh, which is where they have their Young Stars tournament, all the way to their preseason, Ole Uolevi was terrible. He wasn't bad. He was awful. And he looked like he was eight years away from making this team, if at all. It was just a complete 180 from the player I watched at the end of last season with the uh, London Knights of the OHL, the player who was eating massive minutes, doing it with a draft minus one defender, and putting up meager but impressive enough offensive outputs. Uh, He was an absolute beast in their first-round series against the Windsor Spitfires. And I thought at that time, not only could he make the Canucks, he'd be their fourth-best defenseman. And he comes to camp, and he's put on an extra 14 pounds. That's the one thing to keep in mind here with U11. Mm -hmm. I wanted him to bulk up. So he added about 15 pounds in body mass, and you could tell it was a slow adjustment, a really slow adjustment. He was getting beat on his pivots. Uh, His skating mechanics were good, but he was too slow coming out of his breaks, and that would get him caught when players were brushing the puck across Canucks' blue line because as I kept talking to him at Penticton, he'd he'd keep referencing this one fact. I want to play a tight gap like they do in the NHL. He kept going back to that. And you could see that he was really forcing the issue and without the foot speed to compensate when players would get around him. He was burned. I think we were keeping track of it in Penticton five times in Mm. a four-game tournament. And most of them ended up in the back of the net. And then uh, he had horrible turnovers and just nothing to show offensively for the Canucks uh, in the preseason. So I want to see what's happened to him since he went over to Finland. He's, uh, He's back to producing at a pretty spectacular rate. In fact, um, last season, everybody was in love with Miro Heiskanen. Well, Uolevi is really young for his draft class, so the discrepancy in age between Heiskanen and Uolevi isn't that significant. Uh, They're both under 20 in the the Finnish Liga, and they're about neck and neck in point-per-game pace, and everybody and their dog is talking about Miro Heiskanen as a future first-pair elite defenseman, uh, but they don't have that same time for Uolevi, so... It's he is just a Rorschach test, I guess you could say, uh, depending on who you ask. I, I know a lot of scouts who just don't like his game that much. I know others who think that he is one of the smartest players they've seen in decades. So I want to see what he does at the World Juniors, especially because it was the World Juniors where the Canucks first started to key in on him. He was in, playing as a 17-year-old in a 19-year-old tournament, and he had nine points. Uh, it was one of the most impressive performances I've ever seen at a world junior tournament in years. So uh, let's see what he does there now that he is a 19-year-old and if he can take on that leadership role with Finland and guide them to a gold medal. Canada is doing everything they can to help them with that process. So uh, it'll be interesting to follow. It really will be. And I I really enjoy a lot of those teams, uh, especially when you get these young players that you can put them over there a couple times and see how they're able to do in consecutive World Juniors. Uh, There's other times, uh, Canada, other places. I mean, the U.S. has done it as well, about how if you don't have a younger player on the team and then you just see him once, you can't really tell a lot. There's not really any repeatability to be able to take anything away. I mean, you really shouldn't be taking much away from the World Juniors in any way, shape, or form. But I just find it interesting when you're able to see it year over year. You're like, okay, this person as an, uh, an older competitor in this was able to do do this. And you kind of you get a better sense, I think, of the kind of player they are. Not ne- necessarily that like they're going to make the NHL. But you get a sense that, hey, this person was able to do this over the, the pa- past year because – it, it it allows you to I, I think at least get like a little bit of a sneak peek of the kind of player that they are. Uh, one player that I, in particular that I thought was very interesting and I kind of came away with a whole new respect was uh, Sonny Milano when he played for uh, the U.S. Like he was on the U twenty team for two years. Well, the first year he kind of played with uh, uh, Matthews when he was so young. And then he kind of took a back seat and played like a third line role, but he ended up putting more points 
uh, on that line than he did the the year before. So you're, you're you're thinking to yourself, well, he's a damn good passer. What can he do overall? And if he's put in a situation where it's not necessarily the best, you, what, what can he do? And I think it it's interesting, at least from that perspective, to see role changes, to see what they're able to do. But also, once again, you're taking five to eight games. You're not gonna uh, you're not gonna take a whole lot out of it. Uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, but I, I like that you're able to at least get a little bit of a sneak peek, and I feel like, uh, at least with Jewel Levy and uh, a couple other players, you can take a little peek in there and see if there's any improvements from X, you know, X, Y, and Z, and I, I think especially with the way you're talking about with uh, what he was able to do in that, or what he wasn't able to do, rather, in that camp, that you may be able to... Uh, Get, get a look and see if he's able to work on his pivots or if he's able to uh, you know work on that gap control and see if it's going to be able to improve is that something that you look for or are you just kind of like it's kind of just this is a fun tournament and we <laughs> i'm not going to take a, a whole lot out of it because i mean there's not a lot to take out of it but there i feel like there's still interested t- interesting tidbits to take out don't you think yeah yeah it's it's a delicate balance so you have to like you said be careful that you don't place too much stock in it and uh, going back to last year's draft, an interesting case study in that was the way that the draft community reacted to Miro Heiskanen's uh, performance for Team Finland at the Under-18 tournament, where he was dominant. Dominant, rather. Now, that's Under-18s, and still, that was enough for people to lose it when it came to Heiskanen. Uh, which isn't to say that I disrespect the take that Heiskanen is a good defenseman. I still had him in my top ten, but I thought. The reaction to that tournament was a bit much. Now, for this year, it's it's definitely something that I take seriously as uh, somebody who covers the draft, who's somebody who's an analyst, who follows prospects for the Canucks. But I, you, you know what? You do have to be careful about how much stock you place in it, especially looking – perhaps the Canucks placed too much stock in Ewell Levy's performance a couple of years ago. Uh, perhaps there was a bit much there that uh, they looked a little too far into. It's Time will tell. But uh, so far, they haven't been rewarded for their faith in that performance. Now, uh, what will I be looking out for? Tendencies. Uh, and, and one of the things that when you talk to scouts, they talk about a lot is we want to see what happens when the talent pool compresses. And that's why they place mm-hmm. a lot of stuff in these tournaments. So especially if I'm looking at somebody who is a 17-year-old and I'm trying to project what their future is, it's going to matter a lot to me to see how they perform, whether the results are there in the form of goals, assists, points. Uh, that that will matter to me to look into and see how they perform as the talent pool compresses around them, especially for these junior players, because the, the talent variation in the OHL, WHL, uh, USHL even is so significant that it can be hard to get a read on, and even more so when you're looking at players who – uh, come from high school. Not many of those make it to the the world juniors, but uh, it's it's still you want to get the best possible viewing, the best frame with which to make your conclusions. And I think that you get a bit of that when you look at the world junior tournament, just because there's such a close uh, grouping in terms of talent. I, I remember Brock Besser a few years ago. Uh, he was playing with Austin Matthews, and yeah, you'd watch him play with uh, the USHL with the. Uh, Waterloo uh, team there and he'd also play with uh, University of North Dakota and he looked like uh, an absolute beast and as the talent compressed interestingly enough he actually looked pretty average Uh, it turns out that the two larger samples were the more reliable ones go figure but it's still an interesting exercise from uh, an analyst perspective for sure now before I let you go JD I want to ask you one last question who do you think is getting the gold? Is it is it going to be Canada, or do you think it's going to be a Sweden or a Finland, or is there, do you think it might be a surprise there? Well, can I just go on a rant about Team Canada? No, I I was gonna get into it, and then I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna attack his country personally because I feel like a lot of times you go, you look at look online, and people are like, my God, I don't even want them to win it, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to I don't want to push that button, but I'll I'll, let, I'll give you the floor. I don't mind. Perfect. I, see, this is why I love doing this show with you and uh, Coom when he's not weak and lacking in compete level, is I'm allowed to swear, and I don't get that when I'm on TSN. I can't really do it in print, uh, so let me just come out and say it. I don't have a fucking clue what Team Canada is doing. The one area of their roster, well, that's, that might be a bit harsh. Their defense is actually what I expected it to be. I quibble slightly with uh, with Cal Foot's place on this team. I think... 
I just have never been a huge fan of his game. And when you look at the speed that they have at the World Junior Championships, I want somebody who can play with that pace, who can move the puck up ice. Uh, but he's going to be the seventh defenseman, so I shouldn't be too upset about that. Otherwise, that blue line is great. I look at Fabro. He plays a really understated game. He's such a smart player with the puck. He's going to be a fun player to watch. Uh, Kale McCarr, I've been following him since the uh, AJHL, and I've I gotta say, he's one of the most fun players to follow and watch because the things he can do on his feet. I thought he was the best skater in the last year's draft. Period. End of discussion. What he can do on his edges, his pivots, the way he can walk the blue line. He's going to be somebody who I have such a fun time watching because I always do. And in goal, a lot of people are going to quibble with taking Colton Point ahead of Michael DiPietro, and I have time for that. But Point had a 9.40 in college. DiPietro is a 9.17 in the OHL. So, like, it's, it's not that unreasonable. I think... For me, where I take issue with Team Canada is and they do this all the damn time. They take role players ahead of scorers. They act like they're building an NHL-style team with all the constraints of the salary cap and that they're not picking from an unlimited talent pool. And how the fuck does Maxime Comtois make the team ahead of Cody Glass? For perspective, there's about 50 draft spots worth of difference between those two players. You don't think that speaks to the difference in their quality? What about Nick Suzuki, who outproduced yep. Matt Duchesne in his draft year? How the fuck is he out of the lineup ahead of players like uh, Brett Howden? And it's, it's just mind-boggling. I think they have a lot of talent. Robert Thomas is great. Sam Steele is probably going to be their first-line center. But and like Owen Tippett played games with the Florida Panthers this season, and somehow he isn't good enough for your world junior roster? Are you kidding me? Like, here's the thing, and this is something that Shane Malloy pointed out on Nation Network Radio when I had him on the show uh, yesterday. Each one of these players, Cody Glass, Nick Suzuki, Owen Tippett, they'll kill penalties, they'll pay the, play the power play. They're going to be first-line guys on their team. So you can get them to play a role player's role at the tournament, and they're not going to be completely out of place especially Cody Glass, who we know kills penalties, we know plays the power play. So why do they feel the need to take somebody whose game is tailor-made to that role, especially in a short tournament where there's so much variance? I would never leave behind goal scorers for role players. And it looks like Canada's done that in a pretty significant way, and I'm pretty sure they're going to end up suffering for it. I'm not a big fan of what they did with their forward group, and I don't think anybody who follows the draft, who does scouting, who is a draft analyst is fond of what they've done with their selections. So I, I ask you, uh, who's getting gold, what, what, what's going to happen there? Are you are you placing them not even meddling, or do you think that they're they're going to meddle? The, the thing is, Canada can afford to make these mistakes. That's, that's perhaps, you know, the one saving grace here is that Canada's second best team is still probably better than most teams' best. So, of course, I think Canada has a chance to win the gold, but they also have only won gold once in the last eight years. And you know who they did that with? Connor McDavid. I've heard he's okay. I mean... Heard that. Yeah, he's an (laughs) all-right player, allegedly. So, I think they have a chance, but I don't like it as much as, say, a team like Sweden. I think Sweden is going to probably be the team that takes home gold this year. Uh, You know, I, I like the United States team, but that's the one to watch for me. Yeah, looking at the Ohio, uh, Ohio State, of course, I'm I'm getting in that mindset. No, uh, talking about the U.S. team rather that they're. I think there's a lot of there's a lot of holes in it. Uh, I think there are holes in Canada, but I think that they're they're they can make it up for in other places. I don't think that the U.S. is top heavy enough to be able to do that in the in the same realm. So, I, and I'm not necessarily too confident in them, but I'm always excited to see the the Finlands and the Swedens that to take them on. And then another team that I'm actually very interested in is Russia as well. Because last year they didn't take a lot of the North North American participants in there. Seem to have invited a fair amount of them. Uh, Kostin, uh Abramov uh, is there as well, and you see Sokolov uh, as well. So I'm I kind of want to see what they do 
with those participants after you know not necessarily picking up a whole lot of them last year and, uh, and obviously Russia they're they're always kind of you, we we use the enigma phrase but a lot of times at these the junior tournaments I don't really know the team that's going to show up from uh, tournament to tournament so I, I'm I'm interested to see what they do there but I, I would I'd probably agree with you uh, you know even just looking at it from on paper I feel like Sweden is definitely the one leading leading the way there don't you think Oh, any team that has Elias Pettersson is in a pretty damn good spot. I, I, he's probably the best prospect on the NHL right now. So they've got him. They're probably going to have Alexander Nylander. Uh, that's a team that's not going to be lacking for talent. And they're going to have Rasmus Dahlin. They're going to have Timothy Liljegren. I mean, Oof. this is... <laughs> I know. And you know what? Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Timothy Liljegren is a hell of a player. I had him in my top five ahead of last year's draft. And you know what? What can I say? <laughs> he's, he's, I, I, especially uh, if you listen to Jeff at all, Jeff will tell you that he needs to be on the, the Leafs right now. <laughs> or, or at least very soon. Yeah. No, it wouldn't have surprised me. He's a hell of a talent. For sure, for sure. Now, JD, I appreciate you coming on uh, here today. You can follow JD at, is it J. Dylan Burke or is it J.D. Burke? On J. Dylan. J. Dylan Burke there on Twitter. You can follow me at Sam underscore Blazer. Uh, we're going to try to get back in the swing of things here um, with these weekly episodes. We'll see if Cam wants to participate, Coom rather, um, if he wants to participate. But, of course, we want your feedback as well, so make sure to rate and subscribe uh, to the podcast there at Watch the Game. Um, like I said, JD, I appreciate you coming on and talking in hockey with me, and hopefully we can do it again sometime soon, maybe after the tournament, and we'll see if the uh, those, those, uh, if Sweden's just as good as we both think they will be. Yeah, it should be a fun tournament, I look forward to uh, coming on the show again in the future. Appreciate it, buddy. Anytime. Cheers. Yeah.